now as we contemplate building the Gen 2 or the Gen 3 solutions, call it what you may, I think it's really critical for us to rethink the entire paradigm of how we visualize information, how we think differently, how we even design solutions. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. According to Razu Shrasa, a culture clash is playing out in healthcare, specifically a clash between physicians and innovators, and the tension between what is known and what is new. He's calling for a shift in mindset from doing digital to being digital. This is Tectonics. I'm David Chaywitz. And I'm Lisa Sunin, and today's episode is brought to you by AARP Market Innovation, which works to spark innovation in the market that will benefit the quality of life for people over 50. Well, Rosu, it's so great to have you here today. We are um, delighted to have you because you're one of those doctors who found an interesting path to where you are now. As you put it, uh, you rolled downhill from your birthplace in Kathmandu, Nepal, across many continents and into medical school in India and kept rolling, finding your way to London, Los Angeles, and Pittsburgh, of all places, where you now serve as Chief Innovation Officer at UPMC, one of the nation's largest integrated delivery systems. And in light of all your experience, resume wondering why you think there's such a tension between doctors and innovators. What is the problem? Seems like every other so-called innovator I see is a doctor anyway. <laughs> no, that's, uh, that's a great synopsis of, of my journey thus far. And, you know, um, the culture clash that I reference is, I, I think it's critical for us to, to, to take a step back and acknowledge it. Uh, a, acknowledge the fact that it exists. Uh, B, um, acknowledge the fact that we can actually do something about it, right? So the culture clash is essentially, um, you know, on one side we have uh, the stalwarts of healthcare, um, clinicians, uh, physicians, and, and others who essentially have been taught through the years to go with the tried and tested evidence-based guidelines, best practices. Look, if it's worked before, stick with it. Um, and, and that's essentially how we're taught in med school. Uh, on the other side are the innovators, the entrepreneurs, right? So these are the folks that are coming in. They're saying, look, this is a brand new way of doing things. Trust me, it will work. There's no um, reason why the culture clash really it shouldn't be acknowledged and, and leveraged. And what, that's what we're trying to do at UPMC is try to say, hey, look, how do we make sure that we're able to utilize clinicians not at the end, not where we've created the software or the solution or the product and we unbox the product in front of them, have a quote-unquote go-live event and say, surprise, here you go, use it. Uh, how do we make sure that we're able to embed them and ingrain them, leveraging you know, the methodologies around design thinking and, and human-centered design? How do we engage them? right at the beginning. So I, I couldn't resonate more with with your conceptualization of this. And, you know, this is something that we've also heard from Einar Sawyer, the role of frontline uh, innovators and the need to be directly uh, involved. When you describe the uh, this this chasm um, uh, sort of between kind of essentially a state institution of medicine in some cases and the need for innovation, I wonder how much of it can be attributed to the misapplication of the precautionary principle. You know, there's this sort of principle Lisa's giving me, I'll, I'll explain it slowly and use small words. Almost say, um, do you say precautionary principle? <laughs> yeah. No, no, but the uh, the concept of 
um, it's um, a simplified version, and it's not quite accurate, but it's like the idea of first do no harm, where how doctors you know, don't want to be, you know, they're not going to move fast and break things, obviously, but you want to you want to do no harm. And how do you communicate to physicians about the harm from not changing, from not adapting? Because it seems to me that's really where the tension is. That's a, that's a brilliant point, right? And in, in, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, first and foremost, no harm. And we're not going to get away from that regardless of, you know, how brilliant the innovation here. But that's not the point. The point there really is how do we make sure that we do more of what we're trained to do, which is we need to actually do what's in the best interest of the patient. What we try to do in healthcare today, despite the technology, is we try to do our very best for that patient. So how do we leverage technology uh, to do better, to do what's in the best interest of the patient? And you're right, right? First, do no harm is really important. And I think what we need to do right now is go from this environment of where it's very interpretation-centric, right? The entire premise of all of the different applications that we've gone live with in the last 10, 20 years Let's get to an interpretation. Let's find out what's wrong with this buddy. That's on the other side. We need to move from the reality of getting to applications that are interpretation-centric to applications that are really outcome-centric. How do we focus on quality? How do we focus on merit? How do we focus on the patient and improving outcomes for that patient? And I think that's what we're really talking about um, here today. So, so let me ask you another question. When you, you know, there's always this tension. You know, you've seen it recently, even on Twitter from Farzad, about whether the issue is, um, you know, whether if you're trying to improve healthcare, you focus on recruiting sort of the right people, or that are focusing on building the systems with the idea that systems make better people. And I guess what it kind of brings me back to is there's this really interesting. Uh, kind of dichotomy laid out by Malcolm Gladwell on his podcast, where he sort of was saying that in some situations, the way you improve outcomes most is by improving the quality of the lowest performing members. Like, for example, if you want to improve a soccer team, what you really want to invest your money is not on star players, but on upgrading kind of the lowest players to a less mediocre level. And that's the most effective way, sort of using sabermetrics to bring up the quality of the team. On the other hand, for in other sports like basketball, it really does make sense to invest in star athletes. Having Michael Jordan, you, you know, you want to have a better player, even better. How do how, how do you see that um, when you're trying to think of where where to focus most on healthcare innovation? Yeah, I, I think it really is a mix of you know people, process, and technology. Right, the old adage that it really is all three working together to bring out the best in what we need to offer. I, you know, I don't disagree with what you mentioned, what you said in terms of let's focus on the lowest performing player or really trying to bring out the best of what the you know, star players can really offer to the rest of the team. I think what we need to do is leverage the power of data, leverage the power of insights, and leverage the power of the knowledge that we've accumulated over time. And overall, lift the boat such that we're not focusing on the lowest common denominator, but really the highest common denominator. And what I mean by that is if there is a certain best practice that works you know, really well for a certain patient uh, that has a certain um, uh, clinical pathway or a, or a comorbidity, how do we make sure that we're able to uh, do what is in the best interest of that patient, given the context around the presenting symptoms, the data around the patient, the patient's wishes, um, 
and where that patient is in his or her journey and the journey that we call healthcare, and do what is in the best interest, what the best physician in that group or in that hospital or for that matter in, in, across a, a large population of patients that we treat, what we can do in the best interest of the patient. So how do we elevate this to the highest common denominator, the best performing physician? What would the best outcomes be for this patient and make sure that we're able to contextualize it in the care processes that we're putting in place? You know, thinking about what you just said in and in in the context of the quote, you know, you've you you oft say about the difference between doing digital and being digital. How does that play out in affecting, you know, that that highest common denominator pathway? So if you look back in the last 10, 20 years of what we've been doing in healthcare, we've essentially been doing digital, right? We've been moving from paper and analog and film to paperless and digital and filmless. And by design, with, with, with all the intent in the world, what we've been doing is we've, we've been trying to replicate that analog culture. We've been moving from folders and files and films to uh, e-folders and e-files and, and, and the digital light box, which is essentially what was created today. And in doing so, what we've done is we've ended up in an environment where we're data rich and information poor. So today, when we have all of this data at UPMC, for example, we've got 9.7 petabytes worth of data. We're doubling that every 18 months. Um, so how do we make sure that we're able to make use of that data and really get at insights that are truly meaningful? Right? And that's what I mean by being digital. And it's not just using the data, but it's really making sure that we're able to visualize data in ways that we've never imagined before. It's not just replicating the analog way of doing things. It's looking at data differently. It's, it's leveraging the power of things like machine learning and artificial intelligence to make us be better clinicians. And at the end of the day, it really is about leveraging technology and this is the irony of all ironies, to humanize healthcare. How do we go about making sure that we're able to do what is in the best interest of the patient that's on the other side of that screen? How do we make sure that we're able to really elevate ourselves to what that best physician would do with the best practices, with all of the, um, uh, the, the insights that have been garnered over time in the best interest of that patient? So, Razu, so... So I couldn't I, again. I mean, this is I mean it's a delightfully resonant conversation, and I, I I feel like I completely am aligned with your aspirations. But at the same time, you know, okay, well, so for example, for EM, for EMR data, one of the things people say is, okay, well, I can't believe what EMRs did. They took all the crumminess of paper EMRs, and now it's electronic. But it's it's they haven't reimagined the workflow. Right, and they haven't you know, think thought of ways to do it a lot better. On the other hand, when you talk to people about operationalizing stuff, they say, "Well, if you want to bring the whole issue that all these innovators have in healthcare is whenever people don't is things that fail or things that don't consider that don't look through the wide lens as sort of you know as as, as sort of they state teach in business school that don't account for workflow. So when people try to do things in ways that reimagine the workflow just like you're proposing and don't do things the way that, that everyone is used to, it gets no traction because people are already working their butt off. They're so busy. They have so much going on. And now they're like, wait a minute, I have to like do this in a whole different way. Like I'm overload, overload. I can't deal with it. So how do you 
affect the change that you're describing, given the challenge of impacting a familiar workflow? Yeah, so um, the thing that's working to our advantage today is the fact that we are not where we were 10, 20 years ago. 10 or 20 years ago, we didn't have, um, you know, tablets and smartphones in our in our clinics. We, we didn't have all of these fancy workstations uh, that we're leveraging in the very um, practice of care, which is what we're doing today. The other thing that's working for us is that um, we're actually living, even outside of work, um, surrounded by digital, right? So whether it's watching, you know, the latest, um, you know, series on Netflix or whether it's, you know, using uh, the GPS when you're going from destination A to destination B in your car or whether it's making a Skype call even as you're walking down the street on your smartphone, we're surrounded by digital. This culture of digital is something that is now second nature to us. We didn't have that 10, 20 years ago. So 10 or 20 years ago, we have to be very careful when we were you know, building all of these Gen 1 solutions. But now as we contemplate building the Gen 2 or the Gen 3 solutions, call it what you may, I think it's really critical for us to rethink the entire paradigm of how we visualize information, how we think differently, how we even design solutions. As an example, we've been designing for regulations, right? We talked a little bit about how, you know, the solutions that we've been using today were built, you know, really to be documentation and billing solutions. They weren't really patient care solutions. How do we design not just for regulations, but design for empowerment? The solutions that we've created today, they have essentially in more ways than one ended up causing a lot of burnout. How do we design solutions not for burnout, but for joy, right? When was the last time you had a physician go in and say, hey, I can't wait for that go life because I'm so joyous. <laughs> <laughs> right? But how do we get to that? And I think we absolutely can. Well, let me ask you that. In that in, you know, it's an interesting question in the context of where you work. I mean, you work at an integrated delivery system, which means, of course, that you're both the provider system and the payer insurance company. And um, that's, a, you know, somewhat unique. They're not, uh, you know, generally these things are separated. But, you know, I th- and, I, and I think by and large that the health plans, rightly or wrongly, are viewed as, um, you know, the guys in the dark black capes that aren't exactly known for embracing innovation, uh, you know, and, and perhaps known for being the antidote to progress. I mean, can, can the payers and the providers be friends here? And, and how can the payer play that role? Or can they not play that role as innovator if they're not integrated? Uh, so that's, a, that's an interesting question. And if you really look at where healthcare is today in the United States, it's, it's in a, you know, still very much in a, in a, in a volume-based uh, healthcare delivery paradigm. And we talk a lot about value-based and the move from volume to value, but in large parts, we haven't really moved there. And at the same time, when you contemplate all of the challenges that we have in healthcare today with escalating costs, with quality that's sort of still questionable, and with access that isn't really where we, where we need for it to be, it really comes back to how do providers and payers work more cohesively together. Stephen Brill wrote a book uh, recently, a year plus ago. Um, it was based on this really long article that he had written for Time Magazine a couple of years ago titled Bitter Pill. And his book was titled America's Bitter Pill. And clearly he had more to say about the sorry state of healthcare in the United States. Right. And in that 528 pages of a behemoth of a book, 
24 chapters. Right. He goes on to, you know, integrately outline all of the many challenges that we have in the United States and how the models are really uh, screwed up in more ways than one. <laughs> uh, and he's interviewed a whole bunch of CEOs. He's interviewed, you know, folks from the payer and the, and, and the provider side. And in the middle of the book, what's really interesting is he, he calls out UPMC and he says, if you're looking for a model for the future of healthcare, look no further than UPMC. And that was really surprising to us. But at the same time, not really surprising because that was our entire hypothesis going into this was it's not just the provider onto themselves or the payer onto themselves. It's really how the provider and the payer really work together to push forward what's in the best interest of that person, not the patient, not the health plan member, but that person that's on the other side of that entity. right? And that's what we're trying to do at UPMC. And I do think that that's how we really propagate uh, what we need to do in, 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 in healthcare. Because at the end of the day, we're seeing a big shift in risk from the payers to the providers. And soon that risk is um, you know, going to be shifting more to the consumers, to the, to, the, to the persons that are consuming healthcare. And that's the reality of healthcare today in the United States. And I think he who manages to really tackle that shift in risk and manages to make sure that we're able to work cohesively between that yin and yang, that is the payer and the provider, that's the group that really would, will come out tops doing what is in the best interest of that person. And that's what we're trying to do at UPMC. You know, that that's so true, I think, of of the where we are, but, but it, it cre- creates an interesting dichotomy for those who are both innovators and venture investors, which I know you are at UPMC. On the one hand, you can build things for your integrated delivery system, which is perhaps you know, more advanced in the value-based uh, chain. But if you invest in companies that need to make a living out in the real world, which you, I know you also do, they re- the rest of the real world may not quite be ready. How do you balance that? How do you balance that opportunity to make a return from investments that you know may take six, eight, 10, 15 years to mature versus creating and investing innovation that you want to use right now? Yeah, so uh, what's really interesting about the question you just asked, Lisa, is the fact that when you look at where healthcare is, I absolutely agree. I mean, uh, you know, we're still in a place where, you know, volume-based uh, practices rule the roost and, and we need to create solutions for that. But at the same time, what's really interesting about where we are at UPMC is that we're not just talking about moving from volume to value, we're living and breathing it in large parts already today. So we, you know, some would say we're maybe a, at least a couple of years ahead of the rest of the marketplace, given the fact that we're an integrated delivery payer provider, yin and yang, right? So what we're doing is we're leveraging um, the reality of how we're functioning at UPMC to build solutions with the right partners. So for example, uh, Vivify Health is a, is a company that's really doing some interesting things, very innovative things in the area of remote monitoring, uh, whether it's around congestive heart failure or advanced illnesses. Um, and so what we're doing directly with them is we're, we're not just investing in Vivify Health, but we're co-creating the right set of solutions that would allow for patients to be discharged from our hospitals, not just with a bag of mm-hmm. pills as they currently are. Well, it gives them something to sell to the high school students they know, though, you know? <laughs> That's right. But we're discharging patients with, um, with apps and with, um, with intelligent devices that monitors them um, such that 
even before they know that, so this is a patient with congestive heart failure, right? Even before they know that they're falling off the guardrails when they're at home, we know that they're falling off the guardrails or they're about to fall off the guardrails. And we're able to intervene and we're able to prevent them from coming back into the hospital, which is very different from the reality of healthcare today, which is, you know, heads in beds, right? We believe that the future of healthcare is one where we have very few patients in our hospital beds. If our hospital beds are full, we have failed. That's the sort of the adage that we believe in. And and Vivify Health is one specific example of how you know we're meeting our needs today at UPMC being this payer provider organization that really wants to push for patients not to be in beds. We we want them to stay at home for as long as possible and maintain them in that cycle of wellness before they go into that cycle of illness. Um, and, and we believe too that that's where the market is going, right? And hence what we're doing through UPMC Enterprises is we're putting our money where our mouth is. And we're investing in brilliant companies and technologies like what Vivify Health is pu- pushing forward. And we're saying, all right, how do we build the solutions that we know that the market will demand in a very short amount of time? How do we perfect that? How do we make sure that UPMC then becomes a living lab, leveraging our insights, our data, our 3,800 physicians that we have across the board, and then we become a reference site and a show site, a proof point for technologies like what we're creating with, with Vivify Health, and then we take it out to market. And that's the model that we're pushing. How, how many of your patients, you know, because your, your model sounds similar, for example, to what I hear at Geisinger, um, but so I'm wondering, how many of your patients do you actually cover, are covered under your insurance? Is every, in other words, do you cover all the patients in your hospital? I think like at Geisinger, it's something like a third. I'm wondering what it is for you guys. Yeah. So, Kaiser's like 100%. Yeah. Um, no, it's uh, definitely not 100%. What's interesting is, so at, at our health plan, um, so, uh, we, we have, what, 2.9, close to 3 million members um, that we cover at, at, at our health plan. And, and some would say that the UPMC health plan is perhaps, you know, the most successful startup that we have under our UPMC umbrella. Um, but, but it's, you know, it's a, it's a population that's continuing to grow. Uh, it's a population that continues to get the benefit of not just the fact that, you know, we have a, uh, a top-class insurance plan, but a top-class insurance plan that's tightly integrated with a top-class healthcare provider organization. Right. But so of the people you, co- of, let's say, the patients in your hospital, how many of those are in your health plan versus how many of them have other coverage? Um, I'd say about um, half or so of those uh, would be covered by our health plan. And does everyone get sort of the, you know, there's always a little bit of attention because to the extent that you own the risk, there's, it just seems like the incentives towards care are tend to be different than when somebody else owns the risk and you sort of own, then it becomes more of a, there tends to be more fee for service when you don't own the risk and obviously more of a you know, accountable care model when you do own the risk, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and what's interesting is some of the most successful programs that we have um, at UPMC, even as we look across, um, you know, sort of uh, the, the population of uh, patients that we're treating, whether they're uh, at, at a UPMC hospital or not, uh, are where we actually have some, um, some risk-sharing type initiatives in place. So patient-centered medical homes um, have been very successful in a number of different uh, areas across um, the work that we've been doing here. And we've seen where when, um, uh, you know, primary care practitioners, um, you know, come together with, 
uh, with uh, subspecialist physicians and, and, and endocrinologists, nutritionists around, you know, a patient uh, population, uh, the outcomes actually are a lot better than, than what we've otherwise seen. And, and that's the sort of model that we're continuing to push for at UPMC. So let me ask you, Rosie, you're a big advocate, I know, uh, and you mentioned earlier that the concept of humanizing healthcare. Um, you've been uh, in many, many countries from Nepal to Europe to the U.S. Who's best at this? Where are they? Where are they doing this well? If you could give us an example, and where they, you know, where where needs to improve the most? Um, so, you know, what's really interesting is um, we we get lots of visitors from um, you know outside of the United States coming to us at UPMC and and other areas, sort of just looking at a you know how do we learn from from you guys in America, right? Um, and I always tell them, I said, look, we're not really, um, you know, at a at a place where, you know, we can be very proud of everything that we've done. Now, we're extremely proud of the innovations that are coming out of the United States. We're extremely proud of the best practices that we're pushing forward, whether it's in technology or whether it's in clinical practice. Right, but what have you seen elsewhere that's inspired you? Right. So what we've seen elsewhere, however, is, you know, this, this um, uh, embrace of how the patient really is put forward as opposed to what we're doing in the United States today. So here's what I mean. Today in the United States, um, when you look at, you know, sort of the top 20 countries across the United States, we, you know, we have outcomes that are not very good, right? Uh, costs that are going through the roof. Healthcare is a $3.7 trillion industry, yet our longevity is you know, not even as good as some of some of the countries in 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 in, uh, in, in the eastern part of Europe. Um, so, what they're doing really well, uh, for example, in Canada, uh, for example, in even in the NHS uh, and in countries like Singapore, uh, where um, I was recently as well, is they're really working together um, to push for what is in the best interest of the patient by first of all. Uh, making sure that there is access to care, right? So, in, so it's not, you know, you're not breaking your bank um, to have health insurance coverage, which is a big problem that still exists in the United States. Access to care is, you know, second nature uh, to being able to live and breathe in, in some of these countries. The second is they're really looking at best practices around how we make sure that they're able to leverage, um, you know, the, the, uh, the best practices around clinical protocols, but also around technologies and do what is in the best interest of the patient. So they're learning from the best of what's going on in the United States, what's going on in Europe, uh, and, uh, and, and really putting that into action in countries like Singapore. Um, the third thing that they're doing really well is um, they're, they're going out and truly innovating. And we're doing the same here in the United States, but they're working with, um, you know, uh, the, 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 um, a population that's uh, fairly varied in, um, in, uh, in, in their makeup. Uh, you know, they have uh, diversity in population that I think um, is, uh, is really interesting in, in how they're approaching care. And for them, uh, pushing for things like medical tourism, pushing for things like, um, um, you know, allowing for patients to be charged with their data or, or have access to the data. That's a big, big plus for them. So, you know, again, there are things that we can learn from both sides of the fence. I'm not saying that we're, uh, we're 
you know, terrible at what we're doing. In fact, I love the fact that we're pushing the boundaries of innovation in the United States around uh, whether it's around certain types of clinical procedures or whether it's really uh, in the embrace of technology. But overall, as a system, we need to really bring the cost of care down. We need to bring down complexity. Uh, and complexity has just gone through the roof in the United States. And that is not quite the case in countries like uh, Singapore. So let me ask you, uh, you know, the innovation work that you do is obviously tied to creativity. And I know you're also uh, very interested in the arts and, and are yourself a painter. It's interesting, I note, that so many of the physicians and, and technologists that we've interviewed over the last few years have this artistic side to them. Do you think art is intrinsically tied to technology and medicine or, or innovation? Do you think those things always go together? That's a great question, Lisa. Um, you know, in many ways, I do think they go together. Um, I think, you know, uh, if, you, if you just take, take a pause and look at, um, you know, the very practice of healthcare, um, we're oftentimes just in a big rush to get at a diagnosis or an interpretation. Uh, and, you know, with the reality of how healthcare is in the United States, we've, you know, really um, propagated this notion of defensive medicine in more ways than one. I, I think, you know, we, we really need to not just um, listen, but hear, uh, not just look, but see. You know, we need to pause and think uh, and then act. Right? We, we shouldn't be in a big rush to just you know, get at a diagnosis or an interpretation. We really need to emphasize. We need to connect with the patient. And that's where you know, um, leveraging some of these principles of human-centered design, where you're looking and understanding and then making, uh, and, and leveraging these principles of design thinking, where, uh, where, you know, where empathy really becomes a core aspect of uh, creating solutions or uh, where we're defining and ideating and prototyping and testing and going in these iterative circles of, of creating solutions that are really designed with the end user in mind. And that's where I think, you know, the, the artistic notion really comes into play where we're saying, hey, how do we make sure that, um, you know, even if ease of use is invisible, its absence sure isn't, right? So how do we make sure that we're able to create solutions that are truly uh, user-centric, that truly are simple? It's not just about adding more things, adding more buttons or tabs and belts and whistles. It really is about simplifying. It's about removing things. It's about simplifying it to a point where you can't remove anymore, yet it's you know, functioning to the best of its capability around, uh, around the patient that we're trying to treat. And that's what um, I think we need more of in, in healthcare design. Well, I know you you sent me a photo of one of the favorite pictures that you've painted, this beautiful picture of clouds. It looks uh, to me like uh, the way it's characterized, it's like sort of an aha moment. So we'll make sure to post that with the uh, with the blog that goes with this podcast later. And want to thank you so much for your time today, Razu, and for your comments. I really enjoyed having you on the show. Terrific. Thank you very, very much. Absolutely. Thank you both for having me here. And uh, it was a uh, great dialogue. Today's guest, Razu Shrestha, was speaking to us today from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, home of the Pirates, Penguins, and UPMC Innovation. You know, uh, it was really interesting because I think you could appreciate even some of the challenges of bringing these aspirations to medicine. Because even when you were sort of asking, you know, um, 
you know, about what they're trying to do. On the one hand, he would sort of highlight the value of, 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 of simplifying and of simplicity, but then his answer for why he liked to paint was to um, leverage the principles of human-centered design. So I think that kind of shows that even when you aspire to simplify, it can still be sort of a challenge in the context of systems and complex thinking. Well, and the picture you'll see is one that has a lot of shadings and subtlety to it. So Absolutely. It's a not beautiful just a, picture. It's definitely not a stick figure. Um, but it was uh, great to have the conversation. And you can follow David Shaywitz's writing going forward from here at Forbes. And you can follow Lisa Soonin at VentureValkyrie.com, as well as on the Timmerman Report. We are grateful to AARP for sponsoring this episode of Tectonics. AARP's market innovation team works to spark innovation in the market that will benefit the quality of life for people over 50. This episode of Tectonics is produced by Connected Social Media and recorded in Tectonics Studio B in Mill Valley, California. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes. Thank you very much for listening. 